Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. About sense and nonsense, and and making sense in the phrase to you know to make sense to produce sense, and it was it was really that that that's ultimately what entrepreneurs are in the business of, is sort of tarrying on the tangent of sense and nonsense that you know where you are as a founder in your head and trying to bring into reality is what most everyone believes to be nonsensical Nonsense. like you know Brian Chesky and the founders of Airbnb you know that that idea was absolutely absurd to the majority of people like you're going to let a stranger crash on your couch and that stranger is going to pay you to crash on your couch um, you're going to digitize trust somehow. Like, how's that going to work out? And so, the job of the entrepreneur, I think, is to quote Josh Wolf: these these Schopen, Schopenhauer situations, right? These, um, the uh, the uh, what is it? The talent talent hits a target no one else can hit. Genius hits a target no one else can see. Uh, the entrepreneur is ultimately about seeing nonsense and somehow producing that into something sensical, you know bringing the world up to speed or making the nonsensical sensical. I think that's ultimately what an entrepreneur does. Hello, LookUp listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the LookUp podcast. I am your host, Mark Weinstein. And as always, just starting with a huge thank you. Thank you for listening along. Thank you for following, sharing, commenting, reposting, letting me know that you have questions, letting me know that you have guests that want to come on the show. Thank you to all past, present, and future guests for coming on. And I hope that this show continues to bring you all value from wherever you are in the world, whatever you're interested in, as we dive into my curiosity with what makes us uniquely human today. Today's episode is with a friend and founder of the company Aglet App, or actually the company On Life Limited, which is behind Aglet App. His name is Ryan Mullins. He's an awesome, awesome guy, extremely intelligent, as you'll see from this episode. And I want to start with a quick disclaimer that this episode is not investment advice, although Aglet does not currently have an investment round open, but I am an investor in the company. For those of you that don't know, I do some angel investing on the side, and I'm extremely fascinated with the convergence of our digital lives with our physical lives, or as, as Ryan describes it, the convergence of atoms and bits. Um, I found this to be an extremely interesting episode. Ryan is well-versed in philosophy, technology, futurism, He's just a really articulate speaker. Um, he's clearly thought through these things early and often. And I think what he's designing with Aglet, which is essentially the Pokemon Go for sneakerheads, is something that today will look like a toy to most, but in 10 years' time will be part of the foundation for the operating system of the real world or the metaverse, as Ryan describes it. Uh, Ryan has a vision for how we can uh, create a world in which our digital and real are essentially equivalent. 
And that's where the name of the company On Life comes from because we are not living our lives online and offline. We are on life. There is a convergence happening whether we like it or not. And oftentimes on this show, I'll speak to you about the challenges that we face as uh, technology moves forward and the human machine interface gets more and more connected. Uh, how do we build technology that can protect us and our personal interests from manipulation from advertisers and large platforms like Facebook, et cetera. Uh, but today we talk more about the potential. Uh, this is an optimistic view on what the future could look like. And I, for one, think that a future is going to look like everybody walking around wearing their AR contact lenses with their eco-friendly hemp shirts and shoes, all white. And overlaid on top of that is an extremely personalized digital avatar, including clothing and shoes. And for all you sneakerheads out there, if you want to check it out, you can get Aglet today. Uh, you can download virtual versions of your favorite kicks, the ones that you might not be able to afford or the ones that have too limited edition to actually drop uh, in your hands in physical reality. I'm not a sneakerhead myself, but I just find this stuff to be super interesting, as you can probably hear in my voice. So this is uh, quite an episode. We go all, all over the place, starting with the differences between the US and Germany, culturally in the startup realm and all the way to a definition of the four phases of computing. And for those of you technologists out there, I think you'll find this one to be really cool. And for those of you that are new to this kind of futurist view on, on the metaverse or how things are potentially going to converge, I think that this also offers a great opportunity and window uh, for you to start thinking about this potential future. And there's a ton of great links in the show notes uh, for you. So check it out, and if you can, download Aglet. I play all the time. Uh, you can earn Aglet, essentially Aglet, which is the currency, in-game currency, uh, just by walking. So you turn on your geolocation, you walk around, there's treasure chests, there's cleaning stations, and you can unlock all different kinds of kicks. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of other things coming your way. So that's on iOS. Um, without further ado, this is Ryan David Mullins. All right, Ryan. Thanks so much for coming on the Look Up podcast. We were just um, we were just kind of dove in just to <laughs> just off offline, and you had the idea of like, why don't we just get the recording going? Which I think was great. And so where we left off, you were talking about um, your experience of moving from the U.S. Uh, I think you were in California at the time to Germany, and what that experience has been like for you. Yeah. Well, I think we we said, let's go ahead and start recording. At least I said that because I think the number of times that we've talked hasn't, I mean, maybe, you know, five to six times, but each conversation seems like it's a podcast. Yeah, for sure. And so I, I just remember the first time we talked and we had like a two hour conversation and we were like, oh, damn, like we should, we should have just recorded that that was a podcast right there. And then the next time, so th I think this is Pretty like our sixth. Same. This is like there the first official podcast, but like the sixth, to uh, <laughs> the sixth podcast. I mean, I I definitely love chatting with you because you have this, you know, one you you're building technology for the future, and so you have that kind of optimistic futurist. And I wouldn't ever think I don't think you call yourself a futurist, but that that view, that holistic view on what the world might look like 20, 30, 40 a century from now. Um, and then obviously, you know, you've, you've gone deep into self and studying philosophy. And so, uh, so I love to get in it with you on that as well. Yeah. Um, 
and I feel like there's just a ton to learn. So I'm excited for the listeners to kind of tap into your knowledge and what you have to share today. And hopefully we don't get too out there, but actually hopefully we do as well. I, I kind of hope we do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it could be, it could be fun, but yeah, I mean, I feel like, um, I feel like it is a really good place to start, you know, when you, when you left the U S and kind of made your move to Germany and what that experience has been like to you, you were telling me that you kind of carry, you carry things with you. you know, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we, we hit on the theme of, of positivity and, and optimism and I guess hope, which don't really seem to be three properties you find much today. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so so I was thinking about the the quote from Emerson. I can't re- recall exactly where it is. I think it may be in the self reliance uh, essay, My which is essay. right one of the great essays in American literature. I think, um, but the quote is, um, you know, wherever you go, you bring your monsters with you. And um, why I, why I like that quote is because you, what I was saying was that you when when you're living in California, it's you start of get disgusted a little bit with the naive optimism, um, the awesome and the amazing, everything is awesome and amazing. And, um, yeah, (laughs) it's the awesome,ness of awesome. Um, and so after a while, there's sort of a critical distance that you develop or a ironic distance, at least from that mode of being, let's call it, um, the California way of life, especially as a founder and entrepreneur. So, um, I was looking forward um, to get out of that. So I had been in Germany before I studied at a, um, Goethe Institute, um, for a, uh, a summer and I did German philosophy. I was focusing on German philosophy, like 19th century German philosophy, 20th century German philosophy. Um, so Heidegger, Wittgenstein, um, were sort of crucial kind of bookends, I think, to how my thinking has developed and evolved. But, and you know, there's, is, 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 um, Nietzsche, does he fall in that category as well? Or yeah, yeah. Nietzsche, Nietzsche died in 1900. He was born in 1844. Um, and yes, Nietzsche was super influential uh, for me. Um, in fact, I think probably of in terms of like biographical knowledge, I probably know most about Nietzsche. Mm. Um, Wittgenstein as well. I've read kind of an obscene amount about about Wittgenstein. Um, there's a great biography, by the way, if you're interested, but by Ray Monk, it's called the duty of genius. It's about Wittgenstein. It goes into the whole intellectual setting of like that, you know, that modern Vienna culture. Mm. Um, and, uh, Wittgenstein is just a fascinating individual. Um, also brilliant. Right. So, um, but anyway, so, so just like reading a lot of the German philosophy that, you know, the German way of life is this kind of ma- very matter of factness, um, bordering on pessimism even the German word Weltschmerz, it's like the, the, the pain of the world, you know, this kind of, um, it's not really a nihilism. It's just a, it's almost like a default negativity that, I, that I've experienced. The, the people can be very lovely, but when you, when I came over here, you know, bringing your monsters with you for me was sort of, I brought with me this naive optimism that I realized actually is my default setting. Mm-hmm. And that, you realize very quickly is viewed very skeptically here. You know, it's things aren't awesome and amazing um, all the time. And so uh, (laughs) I I, I think that uh, what I've grown to miss actually is I think I've become very strangely, I've become maybe more American since I've been here. 
Mm. Um, I don't really maybe quite know exactly what that means to become more American, but I, I definitely feel like I've, I, I've started to develop more of a love of California in, in particular since I've been away. I actually miss the naive optimism. I miss crazy people who on the surface may have like really dumb ideas that turn out to be amazing ideas and that kind of entrepreneurial um, obsession or belief in this one thing. And you'll go like, you know, Schwarzenegger in Terminator 2, just going down at the end with the, in the lava pit. Or <laughs> with the arm lifted yeah, up. Yeah, just like going, <laughs> go, going down. Exactly. Just kind of going Dating down. And, um, I, I, re I remember once I had, a, I had dinner with a friend of mine from Germany. We were sitting in, uh, we were in um, Moza in LA. We were at Moza. And uh, so we were eating and. Uh, like one of the waiters there was like, you know, kind of an older woman, probably in her whatever sixties or something like that. And, um, I just said, you know, like the kind of the standard small talk or whatever U S small talk. And I was just like, you know, what do you, what do you do? What do you do out here? You know, what's your, like your goal? And she was like, well, I want to, I'm still dreaming, living the dream. I want to be an actress. And then I was, I responded to that. It's like, amazing. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, she's going, she's going out until, until she gets it. She could be like 110 and she's still going to be going for it. But then the other response from my friend from Germany was like, Oh, that's kind of pathetic. Like at some point, don't you just give up? Give and, up. <laughs> yeah. And um, so anyway, so there, just these different, these kind of these different mindsets and I just being over here for so long now, I, I, I just really miss, I miss that. Um, but at the same time, in Germany, the, the base quality of life here is extremely high. Um, and the, the healthcare here is amazing. The, the people are, are very, very honest and very friendly, very reliable. So it's one of those things that like, you know, we're contemplating my family and I contemplating moving back with Aglet, the, my company Aglet. And, um, it's going to be a, a tough choice because there's a lot of things that I love about it. Um, being here, customer service is, is the interesting one. So I have this whole hypothesis about the difference between the customer services between the U.S. And, and the United States, where if you if you kind of assume the basic fact, let's call it the basic fact, which is life's meaningless, you know, we're on this kind of blue dot floating around, probably in some multiverse. And um, <laughs> so, like, let's just say that's the basic fact, like we're all doomed, whatever. And then there's a couple ways you can respond to that. So the U.S., the American style is a kind of, anti-realist approach, right? The customer service in the US is designed to make you forget about the basic fact. You know, you walk into a, a store, you're the hero. You look amazing, Mark. Hey, <laughs> come hey, come over on. here. Hey, this try this on. Let me say, oh my God, that is <laughs> to die for. You look amazing you know so it's this this like you are the hero this this actually all this is for you you know so like it's forgetting that insignificance in the grand scheme of things so it's like it's all about you you're the hero um and then germany is more about kind of throwing the basic fact back in your face so it's you know you walk in nobody cares about you it's almost it's almost like a constant like you're actually a burden being here um and it's like you have to like they're the hero so you know i'll never forget the first time i i went sh like kind of shopping i guess i was in a bookstore um 
And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was like five 45 or something. It was about to close. They closed at six. So I have 15 minutes. I've got like five or six books in my arm. I'm getting, you know, trying to learn German and all that stuff. And like one of the workers comes up to me. is like, yeah, you have to leave. I'm sorry. We're closing. And I like, look at my, look at my phone. I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? Like you close in 15 minutes. Like I got plenty of time. Like, and plus I'm going to buy something. What are you? Yeah. Drunk? I'm not just lingering. I have yeah, it's not books like books in my head. This exactly. Is- it's not like I'm, you know, with my oily chicken nugget fingers, like fingering all the, the pages of your books here. Like I, I'm going to, I'm like, I'm engaging in commerce here. Yeah. And, um, and then the lady says, no, no, you don't understand. Like the, the doors are going to be closed. It's like, you'll get locked in at six o'clock. And then I said, right, but I'm, I'm going to buy something. Don't you get it? And then she said, I'll tell you what, why don't you leave the books at the desk? And then tomorrow morning you can come back uh, and then you can just buy them tomorrow. And I was like, I'm never coming back here again. Like, I'm not going to buy anything from this store. So like, you know, that it was that like, I was not <laughs> made to be a hero in that situation. You know, it was like, I'm not significant. You're alone. You're made to feel lonely. Um, and, and I just think that it's, it's actually very interesting in this small industry of, you know, service industry, you start to maybe see that American life is very, very much defined by the fantastical, you know, the, the fantasy, the imagination of this significance, you know, whether it's on a historical, grand historical level, or even just in these minor things like you going into a retail shop, you know, it, I just think it's, there's a great book that I read recently called, I think it's called Fantasyland. It's sort of a whole history of kind of fantasy and entertainment and the kind of the imaginative fantastical elements of American life that Donald Trump is not an anomaly. It's kind of the culmination of our obsession with these kind of fantastical, you know, actors and entertainers, you know, running things. So kind of a long segue to open up, but, uh, no, I mean, there was so much there. Thank you. It was so, so much, so many different paths for us to go down. It's like a choose your own adventure novel. Speaking of the, speaking of the fantastical, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like Donald Trump, as kind of this charismatic CEO type that was created by a television show, essentially. Like he always was a little bit of a larger than life personality, but then The Apprentice comes out and now he's, you know, an expert on all different things. Oh, yeah. And he was almost, it was almost as though The Apprentice was preparing him for this, for this mm-hmm. role. And and I hear you on the um, on on the American optimism, and it's like it's it's like all things. It's just it's a neutral. It's a neutral. It's it. We get to decide whether it's good or bad. Mm. But you know, you can look at it either way. Um, and on the one hand, people often cite you know the American um, students' math abilities and how over the last you know few decades the American student has dropped. I think we're in in the low to mid teens in terms of our math rankings across the world maybe even high teens, like we're like 18 or 19. And I'll look it up after the show. But in terms of confidence in their mathematical abilities, the American student is at the highest level by far. Mm. And so there's this massive disconnect between, you know, what is reality in terms of the actual rankings on math and what the belief is. And yet the flip side of that is that that confident belief that optimism that we can change the world, that we are exceptional is what drives so much innovation in America and in mm. California, as you've described. Yeah. And, and to your point about Germany, 
you know, I had an experience in Germany because of the Fire Festival documentary. I got invited to speak at a startup conference there. And the founder of the startup conference basically prepped me um, and was like, look, like we we want to talk to you. We we want you to talk about this because we think that German, the German culture needs to shift. And they were German, you know, about my age, like in their 30s, like German startups are so challenged because in Germany, it's not like you fail and your, you know, Edison failed, you know, 999 times before he made the first light bulb, right? It's like mm. you fail and you're not bouncing back. Like you are a failure. That yes. is kind of what the perception is for an entrepreneur in Germany. And so what they wanted me to share was like, hey, I failed and my life is okay. And like my life is, yeah. everything's fine and, and I've moved on. And, and it was funny, just even the Q and A session at the end of it was like, I could feel the sim, like the, they felt so bad for me, you know, like this, <laughs> this failure on stage, you know, pouring <laughs> his little heart out, like yeah, yeah. L- little does he know like how that yeah. he's such a failure. Yeah. And so there's these, you know, these cultural differences that yeah. I, I, I feel you. Yeah, it's it's that's funny. You, you, I have a similar similar story. I mean, when when I so my sec I, I've started two companies since I've been here in Germany. My second company, when we started to raise money, we just started noticing because my co my co founder uh, was German, and um, we as when we were raising money, we just noticed no started noticing that when we were raising, or sorry, um, we were noticing that when we were pitching to German VCs they were calling us superficial because we had a big vision, you know? Mm. So, and it was me pitching. So it was kind of this kind of, I mean, you know, you know me, it's like the kind of these, you know, bigger, bigger, yeah. bigger ideas. We're going to do this, this, and this, and here's the plan to get there. And it was kind of like, yeah, come on now. Like, yeah, <laughs> come on. Now. You're not, you're, this got a little superficial. Like you're not actually going to do those things. And so we just did a little test and then we, we, we started to pitch some, American VCs a little bit later. And we had Johannes, my co-founder pitch. And he came in with that kind of German style of like, you know, hey, it's not, you know, it's not, look, it's a self-publishing platform. You know, it's not, it's not anything big. It's just a, you know, it's a self-publishing platform. And then they thought we were superficial or they thought he was superficial because there wasn't a big vision. Um, so it's kind of this thing where these different contrasting styles of like what's believable and what's not believable that, you know, here, if you do come out with this thing, like I'm going to build the metaverse, you'd kind of get laughed out of the, laughed out of the industry. I think nobody would take you that seriously. Mm-hmm. If you don't come out and say, I'm trying to build the metaverse in the U S yeah, exactly. probably, you know, if your projections aren't that, that hockey shit, hockey yeah. stick, shape of like 100 xing revenue over three years in the u.s then they're like why are you even doing this what's you know where is that kind of grand vision and they expect you to to project like a massive vision and then they'll go back in their in their investment committee meeting they being the vcs and they'll you know they'll cut the projections in half or or by 70 percent but they'll still expect that you, the entrepreneur, believe that you're going to hit that full projection. Exactly. And that's the, that's that's the fantastical that I'm talking about. Is you know, it's like when you you go you go to the whiteboard or something, or you're you know maybe not the whiteboard, maybe you're you're standing up in front of the you know the partners and you're you're presenting your company, and then you get to the growth chart, and it's like everybody knows it's probably not going to be a hockey stick, 
But if you don't have the hockey stick, they would say, where's the hockey stick? Yeah. You know? We're so a little bit concerned that the market's not big enough. Or, yeah. <laughs> you know, so instead of saying, it's like, you just kind of have to play the part. Like every, it's like this consensual, what is it? Uh, William Gibson, right? The internet, the consensual illusion. It's, it, it's sort of this consensual theater where it's like, everyone knows it's probably not going to be a hockey stick, but we're all going to pretend that we believe it's a hockey stick. You know what I mean? It's just kind of, uh, it's super interesting. Yeah. So you talk about fantasy and cult, and then you dive into culture and every culture has their own, has, has its own unique, um, unique fantasies that are created. And so we were also talking about how the U S right now, you know, both of us are Americans currently living outside of the U S and looking in, it feels, there feels like there's a lot of anger and, and with reason that, you know, we were describing the middle the middle opinion, the middle class has been hollowed out so that everybody has been kind of polarized on the extremes. And I've talked about this on the show before, just in terms of how social media plays a role in in pushing people further afringe. But um, we were talking about one of the reasons is like the the corporate, you know, executives getting bailed out, or I was saying this because it's frustrating to me. And yet the mask that they wear, right? Like the game that they have to play as a CEO of a company that is publicly traded that needs to hit certain short-term return targets. And so everyone else, if everyone else around you, every other CEO playing the same game as you, the 499 other CEOs in the S&P 500, and that game is we're buying back shares because we're confident in the value of our company and we want to efficiently allocate capital. And you don't play the game. Just like if you don't play the fant- fantasy game in the US VC world, you know, then you're out, you're out of the game. So Mm -hmm. like these games kind of become, and these masks that we wear, these roles that we play kind of become, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but it's like, it's a self self self-fulfilling prophecy. It's so hard to break. Mm. Yeah. It's a, it's, this is very interesting. I mean, this is, you know, Joseph Campbell explored this a lot in his, you know, his, uh, his writings. Um, This is essentially what he called myth, our mythologies. You know, and and if you if you start thinking about that that you die to deaths, you know, you've got your biological death, but then there's also like symbolic death. So there, the symbolic death death would be that there are these kind of mythological layers of meaning that you live within. And so mm-hmm. I think actually one of the reasons for the anger is just it's becoming more and more obvious that the mythological layer that has defined the U.S. for a long time seems to be um, unmasked. Like it's, it's sort of opening up as a, as a fraud maybe. Yeah. And now there's this second death, which is, you know, a lot of people who maybe were, you know, like very serious Christians uh, throughout their life. And then they, maybe they become unbelievers. And there's generally a, a period of depression there because the compass, the moral compass, you know, the horizon of meaning that you lived your life within for so long now is empty. And there's sort of a moment of, of, you know, sort of being out in the wilderness of like, where, who am I now? Like, what is my identity? And now that these rituals and these habits and this community are all kind of gone now, I don't believe in them anymore. And usually there is sort of an acting out that people go through or a depression or whatever. Um, and that's kind of the symbolic death is coming out of a worldview and then trying to figure out how to 
where, okay, where do I go now from an identity perspective? And I think that it almost seems like what's happening now is like a symbolic death in the U.S. of of the American dream. Yes, right? like I think so. American and now dream it's that your children can live a better life than you can. That you are, you know, you have the ability to improve your status in life. It yeah. feels like the game is rigged against you know against the little guy. Yeah. Uh, and that's why on the one hand, you know, so talking to my nephew, um, he's, you know, started his first year of university and I, you know, when I'm talking to him, it sort of feels like how exciting for him, you know, I just think that I kind of wish that I was going to university for the first time. And yeah, it kind of feels as though you know, there's a lot of shit that they'll have to, can we cuss on the show? Yeah, of course. Okay, Go for great. It. Perfect. Um, um, I don't know, we'll, two, we'll cut out the curses for the German edition. Okay, great. Yeah, we won't, won't get any airtime here. The radio, the radio single needs to be. Um, the so you know he's whatever sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old now, and it just seems very exciting. You know, there's a lot of shit, a lot of confusion, a lot of worry, a lot of a lot of fud. Yeah, you know, fear, a uncertainty, of, and doubt. A lot of fud. Everything's fud fud up, right? I mean, it's 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 <laughs> a lot of excitement, though. On the other hand, it's like people now. I think when you start to see, you know, the Peter Thiel line, and that we wanted flying cars, and we got 140 characters. I think that it seems like the younger kids are now living more in the world of atoms and finding these, you know, yes. these these like really impactful, th- you know, energy transportation and mobility, um, sustainable agriculture, health, care, agriculture, you know, government, biotech. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, so the, like the world of atoms, uh, and again, this is me kind of piggybacking on Teal's point, but you know, very little innovation in the world of atoms since I think he even marks a date, 70s. which I think 74, I think is the date that he picks, um, which I think he takes from Tyler Cowen. Um, but he, he kind of nails it as 1974. And if you start looking at, you know, manufacturing and, you know, transportation, like we're still, if anything, the flying experience is probably worse than it was, uh, you know, in the, in the 80s. You get molested going through the lines. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's the, just pretty awful. So, well, well, this is another thing, right? Like the airlines, just, just to interrupt to, to that point on the flying experience, like the airlines have consolidated into a very small number in the United States customer service has dropped. The quality of the experience has gone down. They put, you know, they put great TVs in there that keeps people in the fantasy a little bit, I guess, but they're just not, they're not good to their customers. And they also misallocated capital. And now there's this crisis that hits and potentially an opportunity for some, you know, better capitalized, higher customer retention airlines or new operators to come in and take over from the old and then start afresh and recompete. But instead, what happens is the existing interests get propped up because of political capture from the airlines. Mm. Oh, we're, Mm. you know, well, also they employ a ton of people, but it's just the way that these CEOs so, you know, um, blatantly leave a guillotine over the head of their employees when they've paid themselves tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars Mm. You know, and bonuses over the last five years with buybacks, but didn't allocate capital effectively to protect themselves from a downturn. That is like so, so frustrating. And we could have better experiences, but the current economic, the current political economic situation in the U.S. and really even since the the 70s is a great 
starting point there. And there's so much that happened in that time period. And so there's just this like entrenchment of, of special interests that are somehow protected from creative destruction. Mm. And mm. so, you know, anyways, that's yeah. not, I don't think that's the point that you yeah. were making, but, but just kind of like an additional potential input into that model of like, what, where has the, why haven't we gotten flying cars, but we got 140 characters. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and it's, it's definitely, I'm very, I'm actually now mentally imagining in my head, um, the Louis CK skit that I think he did on the Stephen Colbert show or Colbert report where he talks about everything is amazing and nobody's happy. Yeah. And like, you know, like, yes. so I, I'm very aware that I sound like that at the moment. Like I also agree with him that like, we should be sitting on a plane and just being like, holy shit, this is amazing. Like I'm in the chair in the sky. Like this is crazy yes. how this is working. But at the same time, it's like, what have we, how could this have been even more amazing? Um, because, you know, I always think if we, if you take somebody who was in their whatever sixties or something like that in the, in the seventies, let's say, and then you, you know, they're cryogenically frozen or whatever, we figure that out and then they come back. What would they what would they see that is like so much more amazing or incredible than what they saw then, you know, from an innovation um, perspective. And I think it was Eric Weinstein with your, uh, someone with your, your namesake, yeah. um, who was he saying doesn't like, like the way I pronounce it though. Oh, Wein I, I go Weinstein. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Butcher. I butcher the German version. Yeah. yeah. Um, Weinstein. Weinstein. Um, but, the stone um, on which they crush the grapes to make the wine. Ah, that's yes. that's correct. Actually, wine, winestone. We were little winemakers. That's why. Little winemakers. Um, but um, he he actually has this great great question. It's like you know, if you just basically remove all the screens, what's the difference between now and you know, thirty years ago, thirty five years ago, forty years ago? It seems like all the innovation has been kind of packed into these screens. Mm. Um, and has anything else really gotten? exponentially better like it did in the world of bits you know has has the actual physical world of you know of atoms gotten better or has it kind of flatlined and then what happened was kind of this runaway exponential growth in the world of, of in the world of bits with network effects and comp the kind of compound growth that you get from that those industries um i think there's there's something there um to what he's saying and i think that a fusion of maybe this is a good segue but a fusion of the of the virtual or the digital and the physical mm. is is i think what kind of the next wave of the internet or the next you know the next um wave of computing is going to be this convergence of digital yes. and physical and maybe that's the uh the, the move to the uh, to the metaverse you know that um yeah i'm starting I, to see crop up a lot now and in, in uh articles and I love I love I love that I love that you know the transition to how now there's there's more focus on improving the world around us actually um talk to me like what is the metaverse where did that idea come from and then we can dive into what you're doing with aglet and how it all ties in yeah the so the word metaverse was coined by uh so my actually my favorite fiction writer uh Neil Stevenson Yes. Yeah. You know? So. Oh yeah. Snow uh, crash. We'll 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 yeah, leave man. the post and and that's the only one I've read. So I, I've got a lot okay. a lot of work to do. Yeah. So his most recent one actually. Was it called Cryptonomicon? Is that? That's fall. my favorite. 
This is the newest one. So this okay. one's nice. This is a lot of um, this is this gets into some really interesting stuff about the uh, transhumanism, some quantum computing stuff. Um, very similar to like an altered carbon um, yes. kind of thesis. So I, lo- fall, I love fall that show. You know, it's, it's it's like trash dialogue. <laughs> altered oh, carbon, awful. But, which is kind of why I like it. I know, um, but the concept is amazing. <laughs> um, but um, so yeah, so snow crash is is where that that came from, and and I think generally how the metaverse has been has been pitched is a is like a collective virtual environment that we inhabit. So, you know, if you think way back to, you know, um, the Sims or like Second Life, mm-hmm. kinds of things very, very early on, or like you know, maybe Tron, you know, uh, The Matrix, right? Um, and really so- This thing, all of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so it's sort of this like collective virtual um, space that we inhabit and, and, you know, can exchange in commerce. We can create, we can sort of live these, you know, second, second lives. Um, but, you know, I think that, I think it's been mis misconstrued a little bit, or at least misconceived. Um, because for me, the metaverse is at least what I'm trying to do with, with, with Aglet. Um, the name of the company is actually on life. The product is called Aglet, and that comes from a panel I did with a person from Disney, and they asked me, this was three or four years ago, they asked me, like, how much time do you spend online? And then I said, well, that's like asking me what, you know, what does the number two smell like? Um, It's almost a nonsensical question now because you're not really online or offline anymore. You're just on life. You know, you're just in this space of computation, and it's this layer on top of reality. It's a, it's a, for me, the metaverse is a, is a reality operating system, you know, and that's mm-hmm. ultimately what we're trying to build, believe it or not. I mean, we're starting off with a, you know, a sneaker game, but, but the, the ultimate vision is kind of a spatial computing company that builds, you know, an on life OS. Um, but it, and what but I, all of the, all of the best technology, all of the best innovations start off as, a toy. That's right. Exactly right. It, it's all dismissed like a toy. Um, you know, drones were a toy. You know, VR was a toy. Um, and so, you know, I think that the so you know, going back to the to this definition, I think a good way of looking at the progress of it is if you think Aglet is or on you know on life, the company is sort of the fourth part in this series of movies, and the first movie is. The Matrix, which is mm. escaping a simulation to get back to kind of ground reality, so to speak. And then the progression there from Avatar, which is almost like escaping reality into a simulation. Mm. Um, and then there's Ready Player One, which is kind of the movement back and forth between a virtual reality and reality itself. So there's still a gap there between the two. Right. And in the end, there's sort of this decision that they make, at least in, you know, in the movie to whatever it's closed on two days a week or whatever to kind of get back to reality and, you know, forget about the fantastical blah, blah. But um, but then I think that the fourth part of that is that's what the metaverse is, where they converge the fit, the virtual and the and the physical or the digital and the physical converge. So radically <clears throat> that it makes no sense 
uh, to ask what what the difference is. Um, and from a philosophical perspective, mm, from, a philosoph- from a philosophical perspective, what we're really thinking about here is how do you bring virtual objects and physical objects on the same ontological plane? Because we're dealing with now a lot of people, you know, even investors are like, what do you like? Somebody bought a virtual sneaker for 800 bucks, you know, like like that's insane. That's crazy. Um, But a similar thing you can take back to when, you know, if you met your girlfriend or your boyfriend on, you know, a dating site, it was like, what? That's, that's weird. You met someone on online. Now it's weird if you don't meet someone online. Similarly, I think that people paying luxury level prices for virtual goods is going to be something that's completely normal um, and investing all of this capital into your avatar or you know into your whatever your farm or into your um, uh, the city that you're building or whatever the amount of costs that people pay to maintain this by by most people is viewed as you know absolutely absurd and a waste of money but I think we just, you know, it hasn't caught up yet that it's reached that that um, flatness from an ontological perspective that's on the same layer. And you know, e-commerce. What why is it e-commerce? It's it's commerce. Even calling it e-commerce makes it seem not so much now, but before it was e-commerce because it wasn't yeah, normal it. commerce, right? So I think that's this idea of the metaverse is for me is about some kind of a operating system that is a layer into an additional layer of reality in kind of the, the, the stack, so to speak. Um, and I think if you look at the different phases of computing, we kind of wrapped about this a little bit on, on WhatsApp earlier today, I think. But if you, if you look at the, the phases of computing, uh, more, I guess more consumer-facing uh, computing, like the web, you, you know, the first phase was machine-readable websites, that you could, you know, you apply algorithms to these pages, Google, PageRank, and then you aggregate attention and then you advertise. You know, Google kind of won that web 1.0, I think. Um, other winners, of course, but Google was kind of the dominant player because I'm actually I'm cognizant right now of you mentioning those four companies that that we all we interact with. So oh, yeah. Google Google won that phase one. Phase two is you know Facebook kind of won which was how do you make social networks machine readable that you can apply algorithms to uh, social networks, aggregate attention, and advertise. And advertise against it. Right? So Facebook. Well, I'm going to keep going, but I have a question that's popping into my mind. So so you have like the social networks, and that's why you have in phase one, you've got what I call the MMK computing model, which is monitor, mouse, keyboard. And that is where you kind of went online. You sat down at a mm-hmm. station, went online, made some funny noise, you know, with the connection. And then you like literally left and you weren't online. And then that second phase with mobile computing was really mobile, social, and cloud. And that's when you kind of took took the web with you. And now we've got phase three, which is how does reality become machine readable? that you can apply algorithms to and then ultimately aggregate attention and advertise. But like, well, <laughs> you know, that, and that's, it's, it's always where it goes, but like, that's, that's, it's who's going to win that. 
Well, is that an inevitable law of of physics, uh, of the physics of this, that it always has to go to aggregating attention and advertising? Or is there some fundamental glitch in the matrix that we're living that basically drives towards that? Like, what if this new metaverse had nothing to do with advertising? Mm -hmm. Um, What if, you know... uh, so one, I, I, uh, that, that was the question is like, why does it inevitably move towards advertising and how can we pos- how can we change that? Is there an improved model? Then I'm also reminded of, um, Josh Wolf of Lux Capital. Mm. He, de- he describes when you said the mouse and the keyboard, you know, he describes that this, this kind of, um, uh, radioactive decay of time, um, you know, having the having of time for the human machine interface. So he says in the seventies, it was like, you know, you're, you're literally going to like a giant computer that's the size of a room and you're plugging in, you know, different wires into the mainframe. And then I think, you know, 25 years later, you have a desktop and then 12 and a half years later, you have a laptop and I could be butchering the exact timeline. But then it's like six years later, you have your iPhone. So now the only thing that separates most men from their computer, which has an absurd amount of computing power, like each of our phones more than the lunar lander by multiples, orders of magnitude. The only thing that separates our phones from the human is a thin slice of fabric in our pocket. Then you have, you know, three years later, the Apple Watch, which is skin contact and other wearables. Then you have one and a half years later, the AirPods, which are now kind of in your body. And basically, eventually we're accelerating towards the, the convergence of man and machine. Mm. And so that that's part of the metaverse. Like when we're all wearing our AR yeah. our augmented reality goggles or, or, or contacts. Yeah. I think where you're going with it is is right, because now we're starting to complete the four companies that we that we interact with, right? Because now you're kind of getting more toward the hardware side of it, which is um, how are you, if you've got the, if web 1.0 is really about the web, right? And the aggregation of attention and and then the advertising, and then you've got mobile social cloud um, with, uh, you know, social networks, but then also obviously the web and content creation, YouTube and all that stuff. But really you've got Apple with creating the devices um, through which you access all those things made possible by the you know algorithms right and these these user interfaces um, but then you know in the web 1.0 is you know you had IBM and you know Dell and you had a lot of those hardware companies of making laptops and you know desktops mm-hmm. and stuff like that and then the question will be ultimately in this third phase of computing that we're calling the metaverse the convergence of um, physical and digital, what are going to be the hardware companies that make possible the interfacing with this reality operating system that I'm talking about? That's ultimately why Facebook, I think, bought Oculus Rift, was that in the event that it becomes virtual reality, that's the hardware interface that connects you. Mm-hmm. It's why Apple is, you know, who knows what will happen now with the delays because of COVID, but, you know, they were supposed to be releasing next year um, some augmented reality um, glasses, uh, glasses. Um, Google Glass being way, way ahead of its time. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, it's. I, I think you're right about that. It's, you know, the watch. For me, it's always that's what I thought was great about the watch and also the AirPods. 
when everybody remember initially everyone made fun of the airpods they all thought it was dumb they all yeah. made fun of it and like it didn't feel like that that kind of 10x you know exactly like improvement like the the iphone was yeah so if you really think about like what is then sort of the hardware stack of how will inter- interface with the metaverse or um web 3.0 is going i think to be probably you know airpods you've got a watch and then you're wearing some kind whether it's a contact lens or you know um you know some kind of eyeglasses something like that and like you just have reality um or you have a a software interface projected on top of reality so you have that layer and then it's going to be virtual objects and digital objects juxtaposed and ontologically equal next to each other right so there's the ability to we all remember the minority report and you know iron man yeah. uh the the interacting with those objects move your and, hands and swipe to digital yeah. in in the real world exactly and i think that's where we're going it's you know i think why elon musk you know starts the neuralink company there's you know there's there's obviously a if you think of it from a systems perspective that's there's there's obviously something there with that so that's where i see things going um and you know people are always asking me questions about this um you know how do you can we know the know the future um and the answer is obviously no um but i do think that there's some approximation of almost like let's call it second order knowledge um so maybe a silly analogy but like you know my i have a four-year-old son uh loves to build legos um and if he comes in the room and with a box of Legos and like dumps them out on the floor. I don't know what he's going to build. You know, I can't predict, I could, I could sort of do some like Fermi questions type thing and like whittle it down to some probabilities of like, maybe, you know, given his interest, it's pretty likely that he'll build like one of these three or four things, but like he could surprise me and build something else. But what is interesting is like, I know the pieces that are there out of which he is going to actually build something. So on a first order basis, I do not know what he's going to build, but second order, I know the pieces out of which he's going to build. Mm -hmm. And so I think when you start looking at the future, the bets that you make, if you're thinking of forecasting and trying to imagine what the future is like, this is what science fiction authors do really well, is start looking around at the stack from a hardware perspective. And then also seeing, you know, what are some of the things like, whether it's blockchains, augmented reality, virtual reality, um, and start, you know, gaming companies, you're seeing Fortnite, Roblox, you know, Animal Crossing, you know, gaming is going to the cloud. You know, it's like all these, this cluster of stuff and start to then imagine what are the kind of, what's the probability distributions that where these things could evolve to. And we don't know what they evolve to, but we kind of know the stack, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. That that does make sense. I guess there were a couple of thoughts in there that actually, you know, definitions that I would need to to look up. So I'm going to look up kind of the Fermi probabilities mm. um, as it one comes, example. It it comes from the uh, the super forecasting book, um, or sorry, is it super for, Yeah, I think it's super forecasting. One of my favorite books. Mm. And it's, you know, we I, we used to actually do this a long time ago with my friends, and we did it when I was at Adidas. We did this a lot too. We were just kind of hanging out and. You know, if we would go to the creator farm or something in New York and have a have an evening for dinner, 
super nerdy, but like we would sit around and do these, <laughs> these, these Fermi questions, which is, you know, like, I think the example in the book is how many piano tuners live in Chicago. Okay. Right. And how do you and, approach and, a question like that? Well, that's, that's actually the, the exercise. So it's, it's not that there isn't, I mean, the, the interesting thing is that there is an answer, mm-hmm. but it's not like any of us are going to get the answer. It's more like what kind of filtering, what kind of algorithm are we going to use to arrive at an approximation? You know, so like how many, how many when, pianos are in Chicago and how many pianos about sense and nonsense. And and making sense in the phrase to you know to make sense to produce sense, and it was it was really that that that's ultimately what entrepreneurs are in the business of, is sort of tarrying on the tangent of sense and nonsense. That you know where you are as a founder in your head and trying to bring into reality is what most everyone believes to be nonsensical. Nonsense. Like, you know, Brian Chesky and the founders of Airbnb, you know, that that idea was absolutely absurd to the majority of people. Like you're going to let a stranger crash on your couch and that stranger is going to pay you to crash on your couch. Um, You're going to digitize trust somehow. Like, how's that going to work out? And so the job of the entrepreneur, I think, is to quote Josh Wolf, these these Schopenhauer situations, right? These. the uh, the uh, what is it? The talent talent hits a target no one else can hit. Genius hits a target no one else can see. Uh, the entrepreneur is ultimately about seeing nonsense and somehow producing that into something sensical. You know, bringing the world up to speed or making the nonsensical sensical. I think that's ultimately what an entrepreneur does. A piano. Exactly. Who can own a piano? Like who who. Who plays? What age groups play piano the most? Um, where are where in Chicago are, are? Is that a demographic in Chicago that therefore would then play the piano? Or universities probably have a lot of pianos that employ a piano tuner, or a Philharmonic would probably have a you know uh, mm-hmm. tuners. And so you you start to then kind of whittle it down. You're like given. Given this, all of these constraints, all these constraints, what do we then project as the prob, you know, the probability that there are 300 piano tuners in Chicago? And so you can start coming up with these really weird questions like, um, what's some of the ones we had? Like, you know, how many carrots does the average male eat per year in Illinois? Or something like that. So it's like, <laughs> That's really specific. Yeah, you can just start doing the stuff, and it's like there actually is an answer to that. It's not like asking the question, "How many pubic hairs did Sherlock Holmes have?" <laughs> because it, it seems it, it seems like it's it seems absurd because he's a, it's a fictional object. Even though a lot of philosophers believe fictional objects are are actually real, I, I actually think they are. I think they exist. I don't think they're real. There's a big difference. You know, but there is an answer to that. I mean, as gross as it sounds to the listener, sorry, but like there is an answer to how many I have. And so now you can start asking, okay, what's the average number of pubic hairs that a adult male has or something like that? So how many pubic hairs does Ryan have? No one's gonna count them. But there is a, <laughs> I would hope not. <laughs> there there is a there is a way to arrive at a at a probability, right? Or an approximation. And that that those are what those Fermi questions are about. Um 
which Very is ultimately cool. about these future markets and forecasting and stuff like that. So the point that you just made about fictional characters or fictional items, whether or not they're real versus whether they exist, I'm going to start with the thought because I was carrying this thought earlier and then I'm going to ask you a question about that. The thought is, as the digital and virtual converge and we have digital overlaid on top of quote unquote real, we have augmented reality goggles so we're able to see everybody's wearing their AR outfit. So I'm rocking my aglet kicks as I'm walking down the street and they look photo real. And you can't really tell looking at me with your AR goggles, whether I'm wearing those shoes for real or whether I'm wearing just white Converse underneath them. And that's one element of, of the digital and real coming together. And then what I think is going to accelerate as well over the next few decades and I don't know what the timeline of this is, of course, because I think that's the hardest part is saying, when is this stuff going to happen? But it's kind of the goo, right? The goo, the mm. great goo of everything is made up of the same compounds. Everything is made up of the same atoms in our earth and really in, in our known universe. And so it's easy to move to a place where a future where we can actually manipulate nature to create something that there was a digital representation of now it's actually real using, you know, 3d printing right now is still in its, in its very early stages, but that would be the prime example of mm. moving from digital to, to real and then mm -hmm. back yeah. and download the software to create those aglet kicks right in front of your face from some gray goop that can make up all the colors and do and, and has all the elements to make those sneakers. Mm -hmm. So, and then it's like, if we have that capability to turn something that is imagined into something that is real through manipulating matter and atoms in the same way that we've manipulated bits, then to your point, fictional items not only can exist, but can be real. And I, yeah. and I think um, the question on that is, what is the difference between being real and existing? Um, I think the difference is, for me, God exists, but God isn't real. Um, so, I mean, I'm an atheist, so you know, I mean, I, 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 I think God exists, um, but I do not think he's real. And what that means for me is that to be real is to possess spatiotemporal coordinates and be governed by the laws of nature. That's mm -hmm. for something to be real. But that doesn't, but not everything that exists is real. Right, so God does not possess spatiotemporal coordinates and isn't governed by the laws of nature. If you say that He is, then you get into all these weird paradoxes, like can God create a rock that He can't move or something like that? Um, but so God does exist. So Sherlock Holmes is not real, but Sherlock Holmes exists. And so existence is one of these properties that that is specific to a domain, right? Or or uh, there's a German philosopher named Marcus Gabriel who has he he defines existence as appearing within a field of sense, um, and so to exist is to appear in some kind of a field of sense, um, and therefore you know God exists in the Bible, and there's a whole field of sense there that you know you can you can say true things about God, even though God isn't real. There are true claims you can make about Sherlock Holmes, um, even though he isn't real, right? And what would so, be an example of a, of a true claim that you can make about Sherlock Holmes, even though he isn't real? 
just as well. I mean, an, an obvious one would be that his name is Sherlock Holmes. Um, you know, he lives he lives on Baker Street. Um, you know, these are in this field of sense of the Sherlock Holmes story created by this author. There are various things that you can predicate truly of Sherlock Holmes. Got All right. It. And there's a, I mean, there's a whole, you know, debate about this within, you know, kind within of nerdy philosophy. nerdy philosophy about theory of knowledge and metaphysics and fictional objects and stuff. It's like, can you actually say anything true about a fictional object? Um, I think that you can. I think it's, it is true. It's false that he lived, you know, on Sunset Boulevard. But he didn't uh, live. <laughs> so, well, he so didn't live. The statement he of he, he lives or lived on Baker Street is, is false in a way because he didn't live on Baker Street because there is a real Baker Street, I assume, in London and he doesn't right. live there. So now, so I can now, see both sides of that. <laughs> sure. Well, they're actually, they're both, I think they're both, it's, it's false mm. that he lived on Baker Street in reality. But it's true that he lived on Baker, on Baker Street, Street within this in, universe, in, in the universe of Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. Um, and so, for me, existence is like I think ghosts exist in Hamlet. You know, it's true that ghosts exist in Hamlet. You can say true things about ghosts in the story world of Hamlet, but I do not think that ghosts, you know, exist in in re in reality. Um, and then, and then it's, that's super interesting because then you get to this, this space of like, when you even move away from the examples that you use, which are like fictional stories, but idea space, ideas are not geospatial, but they exist. So, and ideas creating systems that govern the way that we live that aren't actually governed by, you know, physics, for example. So like, right ideas around what has value exist, but aren't real money, money. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a physical representation of money in a dollar bill or a gold bullion or something that exists, but the idea of it that is real, but even the idea that it is money is. <laughs> yes. No, it gets oh, it's, going crazy. <laughs> because, because, you know, I mean, now the interesting question too is, and this is why software is so interesting, right? Is, you you've in the history of philosophy, you you often have property dualism or something. You know, like there's the whole classic: does the soul exist or the De the Cartesian? You know, the cogito ergo sum. I remember you were reading reading a lot of uh, Sartre and stuff recently. So this whole idea of like the you know the I, um, and you know you have substance substance dualists who believe on the one hand there's this kind of immaterial substance that is the I. And then you've got the kind of the physical body, um, the empirical body on the other hand. So two different substances. And then there's always this subst this causality that would have to happen. How does an immaterial soul or substance interact with or cause um, movements from a physical, right? And then, of course, that's the, a theological discussion as well. So an immaterial, you know, supernatural entity causing things to happen naturally what is your theory of causation that enables that the interface between these two realms that are so radically different that how could there be some kind of a causal connection between the two? And what's interesting about software is you do have the world of bits and the world of atoms that interface with each other and actually do have causal properties, right? And so that's why stories like Altered Carbon and everything are so interesting is because you start to see play out seemingly in science fiction, but then they leak off into reality how 
the world of atoms and the world of bits actually do interact with each other causally. Um, I'm not defending substance dualism or anything here, but it, it is interesting to think about these two, how do these two realms interact with each other? And so in my language, it would be how do existence and reality uh, interact with each other? Yeah. I do think you're, that you're onto something when you asked about ideas, you know, when you said ideas kind of in your head, because you can very easily, you know, I think I wrote, I wrote something recently. I don't know if I published it or not, but oh, I did. It actually, the essay is called I Steal Wheelbarrows because I was trying to say like, that's ultimately what I do. That's kind of the principle of my life. I steal wheelbarrows. Mm -hmm. um, and what I, where I was, <laughs> I can explain the, I don't no, actually. But I think I read this. I'm, that's what I'm trying to. Yeah, I know. I know you don't. You don't actually yeah. steal real <laughs> um, <laughs> um, But the uh, the I guess the punchline at the end was about sense and nonsense, and and making sense in the phrase to you know to make sense to produce sense, and it was it was really that that that's ultimately what entrepreneurs are in the business of, is sort of tarrying on the tangent of sense and nonsense that you know where you are as a founder in your head and trying to bring into reality is what most everyone believes to be nonsensical nonsense. like you know Brian Chesky and the founders of Airbnb you know that that idea was absolutely absurd to the majority of people like you're going to let a stranger crash on your couch and that stranger is going to pay you to crash on your couch um, they're, you're going to digitize trust somehow, like, how's that going to work out? And so the job of the entrepreneur, I think is to quote Josh Wolf, these, these Schopen, Schopenhauer situations, right? These, um, the, uh, the, uh, what is it? The talent, talent hits a target. No one else can hit genius hits a target. No one else can see, uh, the entrepreneur is ultimately about seeing nonsense and somehow producing that into something sensical, you know? bringing the world up to speed or making the nonsensical sensical. I think that's ultimately what an entrepreneur does, right? Is taking something from existence that's not real and making it real. It's so cool to think about it like that. I actually, um, that reminded me, it reminded me a little bit about Jung, going back to Carl Jung and mm. kind of this, what exists in the collective unconscious and bringing that through through conscious thought and through language, bringing what we all might understand collectively behind the scenes into the forefront of our awareness. And of course, and I, I talk about Watts a lot on the show, but it also reminds me of Watts and yeah, just, just the, it seems like a lot of, a lot of nonsense is the most useful mm. Our, you know, what's nonsensical can be the most useful tools. Douglas Rushkoff mentioned to me, um, Maybe we're not Homo sapiens, but we are Homo Ludens. Uh, Ludens, yeah, man, the yeah. player. Yeah, it's, it's an old book from I think like the I forgot when it, I think it was maybe written in the sixties. It's I think it was written by a French author, Homo Ludens, and then uh, yeah, sorry to no, yeah. no, thank you. It's a, that that's helpful for for the listeners, and and we're we're coming close on time here, so I'll try to shorten this, but. But yeah, just like that, it's funny because when I think of nonsense and when I think of nonsensical, I think of fun and I think of play. Those are, those are the two words that come to mind. And so it's almost like the convergence of, of what's 
playful. And that's why I think of Watts because I think of like the play of the cosmic dance. It's not so serious. It's not a matter of life and death, but then it comes into manifestation through the entrepreneur and then it becomes this endeavor, this, you know, potentially serious practice when you start having Mm -hmm. investors and other stakeholders. And now it's this thing and it's like, it has a gravity to it. The nonsense mm-hmm. as it's becoming as it's becoming sense in the same way that the non-matter as it's becoming matter has a gravity to it. And there's this attraction and a ball and it, it's it's cool. Like I have a vision That's, in my mind of just like a snowball of atoms coming together around this ridiculous dancer or flute player. Like, yeah, or something. well, I mean, as you've described it there, it is a it's a it is a dialectic, right? Because it's it's nonsense. And, and recall, right, I think I think you said it earlier that everything you know, the, the big innovations start out as a toy and, you know, you play with toys. So yes. uh, there is this idea of sort of the nonsense and the way in which you, 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 you play with nonsense almost. And then there's this channel or a portal kind of through which you bring it all into this realm of sense. So now you've gone from nonsense to sense, but then how things usually work is that it becomes so sensical that it sort of ends up to be nonsense again. And so you kind of have this <laughs> cosmic dance of going from nonsense to sense to nonsense to sense. And it's, it's, it's that play. I, and I kind of think that's, that's how I read Nietzsche um, is, you know, I think ultimately that channel from the nonsense to the sense, the will to power is, I think is, is some, there's something to be said there that, that, that progression into, into a realm of sense or a field of sense might be maybe what Nietzsche was thinking. Nietzsche was thinking about in in the will to power, um, and it's also how I think about it too from a business perspective. With with Aglet is there's a lot of nonsense right now. I think happening. There's no nonsense. Not not meaning like stupid. It's just that there's a lot of noise right now in this space of virtual goods, um, and I don't think what has I don't think anyone's properly made sense of it yet. Um, what's the signal in all that noise? And that's ultimately what we're trying to do is put a layer on top of that. Like a, we're trying to find the signal in this in this noise. Animal Crossing, you know, Fortnite, Fortnite. Roblox, yeah. Louis Vuitton's making skins, the Fabricant, um, mm-hmm. you know, Hundred Thieves is putting stuff in. The, you know, it's it's all this this this. This vir- there's virtual goods on the one side, which is you know projected to be a two hundred billion dollar market by two thousand twenty five, um, and then on the other side you've got you know in our case the streetwear industry, the sneaker industry. And I mean, of course, these- so much of the streetwear industry and the sneaker industry and the fashion industry is construct, anyways. Right. Like so much of it is also like you can argue in fashion something is nonsensical at one point in time and then a pioneer wears that and others say, Oh, actually that's not that nonsensical and also yeah. wearing that. And then all of a sudden it's getting mass produced by H and M, you know, and there's that timeline and you're, you're converging all of that. And the digital playground gets to be this field of bits where you can experiment even more with that sort of. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it kind of leaks into reality because it's for us, you have Fortnite, Roblox, Pokemon Go, um, you know, Animal Crossing, where at least in the, in the case of um, Roblox, even Minecraft, I guess. So Minecraft, Roblox, uh, Fortnite, Animal Crossing, what you have there are like virtual environments, sort of like into which you escape 
um, and and kind of live out these lives. You spend money, you you engage with people, you commune with other people, communicate, uh, and so so on and so forth. Um, for us, though, we're doing a location-based um, uh, game platform marketplace. So for us, the battle royale happens in reality. So our our island, so to speak, is reality. is just the world, right? And what we're doing is now building that game layer into the world. Where I'm not a big fan of the word gamify because I think we're doing the inversion of that. We're not taking game mechanics and putting it in somewhere else. We're actually putting everything into a game. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an, actually an inverted gamification, re- realification. I don't know, but um, <laughs> <laughs> or virtual real virtual realification. Virtual, rea- virtual realification, augmentation, making the world a better place through um, <laughs> virtual realification. Um, oh, so I, you know, I think that's that's ultimately the the interesting uh, thing about it is is how do you build this layer into reality that makes everything function like a game, and game doesn't have to mean this sort of non-serious space that you just kind of escape into it's i think everything's a game language is a game it's basically a game is any space in which there are there's an exchange of information that's governed by rules you know that's what i think of of a game Uh, so language is a game Mm -hmm. you know this is a game what we're that we have going on right now is not because it's not it's not serious but here are two entities exchanging information and there are rules to this specific domain. You know, I cannot suddenly get naked. Uh, well, I guess I, I guess I could. Like, you just I can, did like ten I can, minutes ago. If you're yeah, I, I, I actually I can I can see Mark right now, but like I guess you guys wouldn't see me get naked. But like I can't in in the space in the space of this of a podcast. There are like rules yeah. that that govern the space, and then innovation happens when you have people take the nonsense of. You know, like the 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 sense of a podcast, and then you introduce the nonsense. That's innovate when the innovation happens. I haven't watched it, but there's a there's a new show on Netflix. I think um, Digital Magic, I think it's called, which someone described to me as take your favorite podcaster, um, give them five LSD tabs, wrap them in vegan bacon, light on fire. I don't exactly know how she described it, but it sounds incredible. Um, and man, I, I just like, as you said, in the beginning of this conversation, like whenever you and I connect on one of these calls, I'm just so blown away by how much, um, ground we cover and, and how much I learn. And so I hope that if the listeners, you know, take away anything, it's, there has to be some piece of information, some piece of knowledge, some new way of viewing the world that, um, that you can, you know, you can explore and start pulling on that thread a little bit more. And I'm going to do my best to leave as many reference, reference links and, you know, available places for you to do deeper research for those of mm-hmm. you listeners out there. Uh, I, can, and I can help you out with that too, if you want, if you, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. And, and we're going to include Aglet obviously. And, and for those of you listening, like I'm a proud investor in Aglet or will be shortly. It's uh, it's coming up and, and that's because of these conversations and because I see or I see some of the picture. I don't know that I have the full on life picture that you have, Ryan, in, in your mind and you're the visionary. I'm just, you know, hope, hopefully someone that sees it early 
Um, I just get it. Like I get that this is going to take off and people are going to play this and they already are playing this. And so you'll be able to download the app. Uh, you can download the app already on iTunes and on Android, I believe. Uh, iOS only right now. iOS it will, only. It will be on, we, we've, it will be on Android soon. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, if there's anything before, before you go, if there's anything else that you want to share with the listeners, um, floor is yours. Okay. Well, first I very much appreciate, uh, the time to come on and, and, uh, and chat. And we finally get to record, uh, one of these conversations, which is, uh, which is cool. So hopefully some other people, uh, find what we're, what we're talking about interesting. It's, you know, I consider you a, I consider you a chimp, um, do you know the, the, the chimp theory, the five chimps? No. It's like it, you, you, the ch- five chimp theory is you, you, I'll kind of butcher it. I think I, I think I stole well, my girlfriend the, does call me Lassange. So. Okay. Well, <laughs> the, I mean, it makes sense then if you're, if you're a chimp. <laughs> I think I, I took it from Naval Ravikant, uh, which is that you, I think you are the average of the, of the five people that you hang out with. Um, I guess the four, the four people. Um, and so, you know, I, you definitely want to try to find your, your chimps you know, the people that, that challenge you and the people that, you know, push back on the things you're saying and, and really help you expand your, your mind and, and try to overcome the limitations that we often impose on ourselves. So you're, you're definitely a, you're definitely ch- a chimp. Thank um, you. you're, you're chimp worthy. And I'm glad that people heard, uh, are, are here going to hear a couple chimps, you know, going back and forth on some, some crazy ideas. <laughs> but but also i guess i to to throw out the aglet uh aglet is uh you know is a um pokemon go for all the sneakerheads and streetwear hounds out there so on ios go download it we've got about 35 40,000 people playing the game right now already after the first 3 weeks which is pretty amazing given that we're in a pandemic so amazing community it's super exciting very high engagement and we've got a lot of stuff that's going to be coming out in the next you know the next uh next uh coming months and uh especially now the world's starting to open a little bit open up a little bit more yes. so a lot, a lot of exciting stuff coming so thank eager you brother. to hear the feedback on that thank you yeah, man. i mean I really i've been pl- i've been playing as well I, i've been taking my phone with me on runs and you know when i come back i open my phone and i've got a i've got a box to open and i love the yeah. Yeah. i love the way it feels to unbox the unboxing experience that you've created in in virtual is like it's so yeah. on point. I'm so excited. So thank that. you so much for your time. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll share some. All right. Hello, Lookup listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Look Up every Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way.
If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at WarkMeinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to marc at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, for those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in, and I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have. Mm -hmm.